Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we are back. Episode 45. 45. That's a... If- it's not quite like a monument, but it sort of feels like one. It feels like one, kind of. Yeah. I don't know, every I time we hit like a, a five or a zero, I'm like, oh, wow, wow, we've yeah. done it. I don't know what we've done. But <laughs> Another we've important sure mile marker. Mm-hmm. You've made it. Mm-hmm. Well, my love, what are you enjoying tonight? Well, it drink? is cold here tonight, and it's chilly. cold in our basement where we're where we are recording. Mm-hmm. And so I made a little vanilla latte. With whipped cream and sprinkle pop sprinkles. Ooh. And I'm hoping that none of my like super manic uh, sprinkle crunching <laughs> is audible because I realize these are really loud as we were, you were introducing the show. So I'm like, just eat them fast. <laughs> so I hope that I, <laughs> you can't hear the little sprinkle crunch. <laughs> I, it's delicious though. I, we'll find out. <laughs> They're my favorite sprinkles. I really feel like. Sprinkles can make anything better, like mm. any, I guess, ingestible thing better. Sure. Put some sprinkles on it and it'll be great. <laughs> and also kind of fancy. Yeah. You know, it just boosts the, the fanciness meter up a little bit. It does. <laughs> it does. Let, don't even get me started on a good drizzle. I mean, that <laughs> I wasn't going that fancy tonight, but right, right. I thought about it. But you went for the sprinkles. To, yes. You know. Kind of ease into the fanciness. Mm-hmm. What do you have to drink tonight? I'm pulling out another drink from my On the Rocks premium cocktails collection. Ooh. And this is the margarita. Oh. And that's literally all that it is. It's margarita. Margarita. Plain of tequila, triple sec, and natural flavors. You also chugged a bunch of water before, which I was a had, smart move. Yes, I have had a lot of water tonight already. So <laughs> That was a smart move. Yeah. Tequila and I, here's the thing. <laughs> I, I love tequila so much, but I sniff it and I am immediately ill. Yes. So I have yes. to be careful. <laughs> I, I am confident that I will not drink this whole thing because that's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more than it looks even. So totally. Yes. yes. <laughs> so what do you have for us for a feel good fact tonight? <laughs> so this one is so cute. So there is a golden retriever that holds the world record for, wait for it, mm-hmm. holding the most tennis balls in his mouth at once. <laughs> Augie, the golden retriever from Dallas, Texas, held five tennis balls in his mouth at once, securing himself one of the cutest world records in wow. modern history. Good job, That's Augie. Amazing. I actually, I think I maybe have seen the picture. So cute. I think so. <laughs> I think of your grandpa's dog. Uh-huh, it's just, uh-huh. she's just the cutest. She's the golden so retriever. June, just, the golden retriever. June. I love mm. her. She's <laughs> so cute. But yeah, that one, it made me audibly gasp and say, ah, mm-hmm. and I smiled the whole time I typed it. So I was like, this is perfect. This is a good one. This is a great one. Yes. A good, a good, happy dog. Feel good fact. Mm-hmm. That always, that always goes over well. It's a world champion right there. Uh-huh. World record holder. <laughs> yes. Augie. Best of more than the show. Best of all. The goodest boy, honestly. Augie the it. goodest boy. He yes. did it. Good job, Augie. We're proud of you. <laughs> all right. Well, now that you've uh, lifted our spirits and filled our heart, how about you go ahead and bring us down a couple of notches and stomp all over us? Okay. What do you have for us today? All right. So for this week's story, we're going to talk about a long-standing head-scratching mystery. When a house fire in a small West Virginia town burns down the home of a family of 12, things are not what they seem. Today, I'm going to tell you about the Sodder Children mystery. Mm. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Okay. So I'm going to give a blanket content warning on this one since today's story involves children. Uh, and so if stories involving harm coming to children are too much for you, then we are happy to have you back next week. Mm-hmm. I will not be going into like graphic detail, but mm-hmm. yeah, that is yeah. an element of the story. So I wanted yeah. to warn people up front. All right. So I'm going to take you back to Christmas Eve, 1945. It was an exciting time for people across the whole world. 
Christmas was coming. World War II had recently come to a close Mm -hmm. and things were starting to feel like a little bit normal again. George and Jenny Sauter and nine out of their 10 children were winding down for the night in their home in Fayetteville, West Virginia. Hmm. 17-year-old Marion had brought home gifts for all of her siblings from the dollar store that she worked at, and the kids were pumped about it. (laughs) They begged their parents to let them open their gifts for Marion. It was about 10.30 p.m., so definitely past usual bedtime, but George and Jenny agreed to let them stay up. Sure. Jenny then got the youngest solder child, two-year-old Sylvia, ready for bed. Jenny reminded two of the boys to make sure to remember to shut in the chickens and feed the cows and that kind of stuff before going to bed. Mm -hmm. The kids all agreed, and George and Jenny went to bed themselves. Around midnight, Jenny was startled awake by a phone call. It was a woman who asked to speak to an unknown person, someone who did not live in the solder house. Hmm. Jenny told her that she had the wrong number, but took note of the strange laughter coming from the caller, as well as the sounds of laughter and clinking glasses in the background of the call. Hmm. She hung up, locked up the house for the night, shut down the lights and went to bed. Yeah. Around 1230 a.m., Jenny was woken up again. This time by the sound of something that sounded like a rubber ball hitting the roof and rolling down the side. She didn't think much of it, but within a half hour, she was woken up again, this time by the smell of smoke and seeing smoke billowing into her room from underneath the bedroom door. Oh, no. George and Jenny grabbed the baby and ran out of their room, screaming for the other children to wake up and get out of the house. Strangely, when George yelled up into the attic where the boys usually slept, he got no response. They ran down the stairs and outside with Marion and Sylvia in tow. Two Mm. of the boys came running out of the house moments later, which was John and George Jr., their hair singed by the flames that were now fully engulfing their home. Oh, man. But the other five children, Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty were nowhere to be seen. Oh, no. In a panic, George tried to run back into the house to get his other children out safely, but it was much too hot. So he ran over and broke a window, cutting his arm pretty badly in the process, but pressing on in Mm -hmm. hopes of finding his other five children. Mm -hmm. He looked through the living room where he'd last seen them, and they were gone. He ran around as much of the house as he could, but not only could he not see them, but the whole house was so filled Mm -hmm. with thick smoke, and the stairs also leading up to the attic were completely engulfed in flames. Oh, man. (sighs) So... This is pretty serious. Mm -hmm. So as he's screaming out for his children, he's still not getting a response. Oh, my gosh. Thinking on his feet, he ran back outside and around the side of the house where he always kept his ladder. Mm -hmm. He figured he'd grab the ladder and use it to reach the upper portion of the house where he figured the other children were. Yeah. But he was shocked and horrified to discover that his ladder that never moved from that spot unless he was using it was missing. Oh, my gosh. Marion had tried to call the fire department, but the phone wasn't working. So she ran to the nearest neighbor's home and had them call for help. Oh, my God. This time, there was no operator available to connect them with the fire department, most likely because the next day was a holiday. So this neighbor actually drove into town to find the fire chief, Uh Chief F.J. Morris. Morris had started a phone tree as a sort of makeshift alert system for the fire department. Mm -hmm. This guy calls this guy, calls this guy down the line Mm -hmm. until everybody's alerted to a fire emergency. And then they'd go meet at the station and go take care of it. Yeah. But once again, with it being a holiday, it was no easy feat to get a hold of everyone needed to attend a fire emergency at that time. Yeah. Next, George ran over to his coal trucks. So these are like big, tall trucks. He planned to drive over to the house and use the truck to climb up the side of the home. Hmm. But he got into one of the trucks and it wouldn't start. So he ran over to the other truck and that one also wouldn't start. What the heck? The previous day, both trucks were in perfect working condition. But now in a moment of unspeakably serious emergency, neither truck would start. Yeah. So what the heck was happening? He ran over to the rain barrel and thought maybe he could douse some of the flames with the water in there, but it was frozen solid. Jeez. So they were pretty much completely out of options. And with no help arriving anytime soon, the Sodders were forced to stand outside of the home screaming for their children Mm. as the house burned for around 45 minutes until it eventually collapsed in on itself, burning to the ground before their eyes. Oh my gosh. So yeah, that's the first scene of the story. (sighs) That's an absolute nightmare. 
literally, yeah. like so horrifying. Mm. I can't imagine the helplessness and like yeah. how many things George tried. Yeah. And all of them went poorly. Ugh. So the Fayetteville Fire Department finally arrived at 8 a.m. Oh, my. So this is like seven and a half hours after. It took them seven the hours. Yeah. And, you know, it's oh. one of those things I first, well, the first time I read that, I was like, well, you know, it was the 40s. And, you know, maybe this was a super remote location that they were going to. It was a two mile drive from the fire department. Mm. So. Yeah, don't okay. like that. Don't love it. So when Chief Morris arrived, it was long past the time that the house or the children inside could be saved. Yeah. George was taken to the hospital where he was treated for the laceration on his arm at this time as well. So as Fayetteville firemen were combing through the smoldering remains of the Sodder home, mm -hmm. things were looking very grim. Strangely, though, was the fact that despite searching for hours and hours, there were no remains for any of the children found in the wreckage. What? Chief Morris told the Sodders that he believed that the heat from the flames was so intense that his children were essentially cremated inside as the home burned. Keep in mind, there was never an official heat index reading taken on the home, mm. and the home burned for less than an hour before it collapsed. A coroner's jury was formed to help determine the cause of the fire. Okay. They agreed that it was caused by faulty wiring in George's study in the home. Hmm. Okay. So that's actually weirdly important. Okay. So, so... Faulty. So this is the forties. So I'm trying to think faulty wiring that, that has got to be somewhat common, right? I would Maybe? think so. Yeah, I would think so. But so faulty to start a fire, I guess probably maybe not that common. I don't know. That's, that seems like a legitimate, I'm, I'm literally just like total speculation and speculating, yeah. but that seems like a pretty legitimate thing to be like, Oh man. Wow. What a freak accident. Mm hmm. But everything else, that doesn't explain anything else. Sure. Surrounding the fire. So, all right. Totally. Keep, keep on going. Yeah. So by December 30th, 1945, the Sodders were issued five death certificates for their children with their causes of death being listed as fire or suffocation. Mm. And with that, they began to attempt the monumental task of grieving and forging ahead. Yeah. But quickly, the Sodders realized that there were a lot of oddities about the fire and there were oddities even in the weeks leading up to the fire. Hmm. But before we get into those things, let's talk a little bit more about the Sodder family. Okay. So George Stodder was actually born George Stadu in Sardinia, which is in Italy. Oh, okay. In 1895. When he was 13 years old in 1908, his family immigrated just George to the United States. His brother made the trip with him, but then when they arrived to Ellis Island, the older brother just went back to Italy. So I don't know if that was a normal thing, but there mm. was George, 13 years old in a foreign country all by himself. He wow. took odd jobs in Pennsylvania and eventually moved to West Virginia, where he took a job hauling dirt to construction sites and eventually other materials like coal and mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. He quickly figured out the tools of the trade and launched his own trucking company that became pretty successful. As he was walking along the streets in Smithers, West Virginia, George decided to walk into a local shop called The Music Box. Hmm. It was there that he met the owner's daughter, Jenny Cipriani, who had immigrated with her family from Italy when she was three years old. George and Jenny hit it off and were quickly married and moved to Fayetteville, West Virginia, a community of Italian immigrants where they would welcome 10 children together in the decades to come. Wow. So I'm just going to list them off. I don't expect you to totally remember, but. Sure. Yeah. So we have 23-year-old John, 21-year-old Joseph, who was away in the army at the time of the fire, 17-year-old Marion, 16-year-old George Jr., 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, 9-year-old Louis, 8-year-old Jenny, 5-year-old Betty, and 2-year-old Sylvia. Hmm. Okay. Very quickly, the Sodders became pillars in their community earning themselves the reputation of one of the most respected middle-class families around. Hmm. That was like, like a pretty official title. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> George was known to be an open book. He shared his opinions about most things very proudly. Hmm. While he never told anyone about his youth in Italy or what had caused him to move to the United States as a young teenager all by himself, George was very outspoken about things like business, local affairs, politics, and most notably, 
he was very outspoken against Italian politician Benito Mussolini mm. and mm. about fascism as it lived and breathed. Yeah. Well, Consider- good for him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Considering the fact that at the time of the fire, Mussolini had been dead for nine months, it was a sensitive topic amongst his fellow Italian immigrants in his community. Hmm. His outspoken anti-fascist views would land him on the radar of certain citizens in the area who supported and defended Mussolini and hmm. his values with their own lives, really. It was like very serious. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Which like kind of leaves like a little bit of a gross feeling. Yeah. Well, it, it it's it's a very strange thing to think about people even today, like Nazis exist. Yeah. Like just th- that alone is like kind of crazy to think about, but they exist because people believe that what people did in the 40s was right. And Ugh, in that case, cringe so in, hard. In Mussolini's case or in the Italian immigrants case, they believed that what Mussolini was doing was right, even though it's horrifying. But yeah. Well, and his his yeah. execution was pretty nightmarish, too. And so I think him going down the way he did, I think, kind of elevated mm. the sensitivity to people who were his supporters. Yeah. Also. So that is also wow. an important element of the story. Yeah. So within a couple of weeks, the Sodders, despite being promised a more thorough investigation, would be conducted after the holiday season had passed. They were still waiting for more answers. Within that time, the Sodders, now homeless and grieving the loss of five children, couldn't bear the sight of the ashy, hollow basement of their home. So George used a bulldozer to put five feet of dirt where the basement once was. When spring hmm. would arrive, he would plant a memorial garden on the site. They also began planning and building a new home on the property. As the fog of the devastating loss began to lift, George and Jenny were both suddenly extremely confused by the official reports. Hmm. First off, the cause of the fire. So the cause of the fire was listed as faulty wiring, but shortly before the fire, an unknown man had come to the solder home asking for George. When George met with the man, he'd asked George if he had any work for him. Times had been tough. Hmm. George, unfortunately, did not have any work. When George told him this, the man took a look at the two fuse boxes on the house and said, quote, that's going to cause a fire someday, end quote. George Hmm. did not pay much attention to this. He's just like, okay, because only a week earlier, the local electrical company had done a routine inspection on the house and new wiring had recently been installed in the whole home when the family set up a new electric stove. And mm. everything was in tip-top shape, brand new, sure. past all the inspections. Yeah. But after the house burned down, this got George's wheels turning. Why would this man say this about the home? Like, yeah. he didn't inspect anything. He just kind of not like nodded towards the sure. fuse boxes and said, that's going to cause a fire. Hmm. So that was kind of weird. Yeah, it's a little bit too on the nose Yeah, for, like, no good reason. Totally. A couple of weeks before the fire, the school-age Sodder children came home and told their parents about something they had seen that had made them all feel a little uncomfortable. When they'd been dropped off at their bus stop and began walking home, they saw a strange car. The car was parked along a quiet stretch of highway leading up to their home, and there was a man inside of the car that seemed to be watching them. The kids were all very familiar with most people who came and went on their property, but they'd never seen this man or this vehicle before. Their parents had assumed that the kids saw someone with some sort of car problem or maybe someone who was just lost. And so they really didn't think much of it, especially since they'd never seen the vehicle and it wasn't seen after that day either. Hmm. Another odd incident in the months leading up to the fire was when a local insurance agent came over sometime in October telling George that he should consider taking out a life insurance policy on each of his children. The insurance agent, who we're going to call FJ because there's some conflicting reports on the actual name of this person. Okay. Like, I've literally seen, like, 25 different names for this oh, wow. person. <laughs> so, like, I don't know who this is. <laughs> yeah. But he was no stranger to the Sodders. Hmm. George had worked with FJ, and FJ was actually a co-signer on the family's home insurance. But they had a falling out in 1943. It was later learned that FJ had increased the policy on the Sodder home without their knowledge before the fire. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. So George and Jenny decided not to take out policies on their children. 
Mm-hmm. It's not a super uncommon practice to do that, but right. the Sodders didn't feel particularly moved to do it. Like it really was pretty, one of those things that seems like it should be pretty straightforward, right? Yeah, yeah. Wrong. Hmm. Upon being refused, FJ flew into a fury, telling George, quote, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini, end quote. Oh, wow. That is, uh, okay. I, I don't like that at all. No. <laughs> yeah. This same guy was also part of the coroner's jury that decided the cause of death and cause of the fire, which seems like a massive, massive conflict of interest. Yes, and like 100%. So shady. I can't Ooh. believe that was allowed. Yeah. So what the heck? Yes. <laughs> well, and, FJ, and, yeah. And it's, it's, there's documentation that he is part of the whole, uh, that's yeah. I don't get that. There's yeah. a lot of confusing. What were the forties? What were they doing? What the what, heck? What was happening back what? there? <laughs> why were they, why would they let that happen? That's so odd. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So were FJ and the man who warned about the house fire possibly connected? What about the lady who seemingly dialed the wrong number, who had like the sounds of laughter Mm -hmm. and glasses clinking in the background? Was that shady? Yeah. Like, were they all in on some plan hatched by other Italian residents who were in support of Mussolini and therefore against George Sauter? Hmm. Maybe. Yeah. There were a lot of people that were very mad at him, but it still does not solve the problem of how the fire started to begin with. Yeah. As the spring months approached, the snow began to melt away. On one spring morning, little Sylvia, who was three at this time, was playing on the family property as the older Sodders were working, and that's when she found something. A ball near the area of the side of the former family home. She brought it over to her parents to show it to them. It was a dark green rubber ball that had a lid that screwed on, and it was hollow on the inside. They Mm. learned that it's what is called a pineapple bomb, which is essentially a grenade. Remember that weird sound that Jenny had heard the Uh night of the fire? Something that hit the roof and rolled down about 30 minutes before they were fleeing for their lives out of their home? So they brought the object to a local military official who confirmed that it was definitely a pineapple bomb. Along with this, a local bus driver had made a report stating that they'd seen someone throwing balls of fire at the Sodder's home on the night of the fire. What? Extremely (gasps) suspicious. So we also need to consider some of the oddities about the night of the fire itself. At no point during the ordeal did George, Jenny, or any of the other kids get any sort of visual or vocal response from the children who were supposedly trapped in the home as it burned. Mm Mm-hmm. Nobody had seen them, not when they first ran out of their room, not when George had ran back into the home, no children looking out of the windows or trying to escape, no screams or cries for help, nothing. Hmm. Not only that, but the ladder that George always kept in the same place was found about 75 feet away from the home, and it looked like someone had thrown it haphazardly into the ditch where he found it. Hmm. What about the two trucks that wouldn't start? Yeah. There was never an investigation done on the vehicles, and I couldn't find anything about repairs being done on them after the night of the fire. Mm -hmm. But it's worth pointing out that shortly before the incident, someone was seen stealing George's block and tackle out of his shed. So a block and tackle is basically just a system of pulleys. Yeah. And so George had used the block and tackle to work on his trucks pretty much exclusively. Oh, also, the guy who had been caught stealing the block and tackle has also been reported as being part of the coroner's jury. Oh, no. There's some conflicting reports on that, but most of my sources said that he was on the coroner's jury where others didn't say one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Bizarrely, this guy, his name was Lonnie Johnson. He got caught. He was not further investigated as a potential suspect in the fire and was fined a whopping $25 for the theft on the block and tackle and was sent on his merry way. One other element is that most of the sources I read said that he had confessed to cutting the family's uh, phone lines. Really? Up on a 14-foot pole. And so how would he access that? Yeah. Huh. Oh, man. Yeah. So he was just covering for somebody. Potentially. Potentially. Well, and... Or they took the ladder, climbed up, 
did that, climbed down through the ladder in the ditch. Well, yeah. and I don't, I don't think I wrote this down. If I did, I'll just repeat myself later. But George had speculated that the phone lines being cut, which they were, like mm-hmm. they investigated, they were in fact cut. But he thinks that whoever did it, Lonnie, uh, meant to cut the electrical lines and not the phone lines. Oh, huh. So, wow. I do think we'll get more into that. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Cause right now, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> So another detail that is weird is the faulty wiring being listed as the cause. Mm -hmm. Investigators had claimed that there was a wiring mishap that originated in George's study. The trouble with this was not only were the lights in perfect working order as the fire blazed, the Christmas lights were on. Mm -hmm. Jenny was able to turn on lights as she ran through the home on their way out and said that if the lights had not been fully operational, she didn't believe they would have gotten out because the visibility was so terrible from the smoke, even with the lights on. Mm, Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that was what I was, I actually was going to say it right here. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That the Sodders did believe that he'd taken the ladder, Lonnie Johnson. Yeah. And intended to cut the electrical lines. Because that would have made the story make more sense. Oh, yeah. Marion had tried to yeah. call the phone yeah. or call the fire department with the phone. Yeah. Didn't work. But the lights did. Hmm. And so the, yeah, and the electrical being on, meaning that the lights were on so they could get out. Otherwise, if they couldn't see, couldn't get out, they would mm-hmm. all be, they'd all be dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. They really did not have any way of proving that without yeah. like somebody confessing to that's right, right. what the deal is. Here's what the intent was and all of that. But either way, things were not totally adding up either. Right. Jenny also considered the fact that no remains had been found. They had originally believed the report that the remains of the children had been sadly reduced to ash due to the heat of the fire. Mm-hmm. This felt wrong somehow. As fire crews sifted through the remains of the home, it was noted that there were kitchen appliances and other household objects that were completely intact even if they had signs of damage from the fire. Mm-hmm. So a lamp and a mixer yeah. are fine, but the remains of five whole children were completely unaccounted mm. for. Also, an average house fire reaches temperatures of around 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, and it takes roughly three to four hours to cremate a body, and then another two to three hours to process the remains. The average temperature for cremation is around 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. Their home only burned for 45 minutes before collapsing. Yeah. Despite the fact that a heat index wasn't taken on the night of the fire, how likely would it have been that their house fire had burned almost a thousand degrees hotter than the average house fire and that the remains of the children would have been completely cremated in like a recordly short time? Yeah. 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 Very weird. And so that's when Jenny happened to have read an article about another family who had sadly been killed in a house fire. Mm -hmm. In this instance, the remains of the entire family, including the remains of a very small baby, had been recovered. Hmm. A baby much smaller than her kids, ranging from ages 5 to 14. Yeah. So Jenny decided to conduct a little experiment. She took animal bones from dinner, Mm -hmm. such as pork, chicken, and beef bones, and burned them in their stove. She did this experiment numerous times, burning the bones for long periods of time. And in every case, the bones were definitely charred by the flames and heat, but were still identifiable and intact. Yeah. For Jenny, that settled it. Yeah. Her children were not dead. The fire had been set as a clever ruse and cover-up for a kidnapping. Oh my gosh. And just as soon as Jenny was convinced of this, strange reports of sightings of the missing Sodder children began. No way. Oh my gosh, I just got goosebumps. I know. What? A local woman claimed to have seen the children looking out of the windows of a car that had passed her at the time of the fire, like that night. Another woman who managed a restaurant in Charleston, West Virginia, about 45 minutes away from Fayetteville, also claimed to have seen them. She said that on Christmas morning, a car with Florida license plates pulled up to the spot, which was like a tourist mm-hmm. spot, rest area, and there were some businesses and stuff there. Two men and two women then entered the restaurant with multiple children. She served them breakfast, but noticed that when she tried to be friendly towards the kids, the adults pretty aggressively made it clear that they did not want her to talk to them. Mm. She said that the group began speaking in hushed tones in Italian. They mm. also rented a single hotel room that night. 
The room was large with several beds, but after the uncomfortable moment of being basically iced out of communicating with these people, she was never able to speak to them again. So, and they did leave pretty early Mm, the next morning. Yeah. When this woman read the newspaper article featuring the story of the Sauter house fire, she claimed that she immediately recognized four out of five children in the photo as being a striking resemblance to those pictured in the article. Wow. Yeah. I, so these are the kids that they were in the living room when the parents last saw them, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And Marion. Yeah. So they would have been, if they were going to be kidnapped, they would have been kidnapped right out the front door and taken away. And then the fire started. Possibly. It's, it's not like these are kids that are um, like difficult to get to mm-hmm. in the most, in the most like general hypothesis that you can sure, come up with. Sure. Hmm. Okay. There are, I, yeah, there are some ideas as to how it would have been pulled off that people have like speculated on and maybe not fully agreed on, but some people are like, they could have had somebody that was familiar to mm-hmm. them knock on the door and say, Hey, we're going to go Christmas caroling. You should come. We're going to a party. Right. Right. You know, or if it was the boys outside that yeah. were doing their chores and oh, right, they'd asked they were, any of the other yeah. ones to come with, you know, yeah, cause they were letting the, putting, putting the chickens away. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. those are, those are some of the things I realized just now I said four out of five children in the photo were the same as the ones in the article I meant in the restaurant. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, knew what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but I felt like really stupid. So I had to clarify that. So this woman actually went on official record with this statement, 100% believing that it was four of the solder children that she'd seen. Hmm. Yeah. Later on down the line, a report came out of a fishing village in Florida called Cortez. Someone else had reported seeing the children, but upon further investigation, there was no sign of them. Theories and rumors and more eyewitness accounts continued to pour in And like a true dad, George followed up on every single one of them, regardless of the fact that police in Fayetteville were extremely unhelpful at best towards the Sodders. Wow. And when I say that George investigated every one of them, I mean, he drove to the place. Wow. Oh, man. This poor guy was all over the whole country trying to find his kids. Dedicated. Yeah. Less than two years after the fire, George saw a photo in a newspaper of school children in New York. He swore that one of the children in the photo was Betty. So he drove all the way out. But when he figured out where the family of the girl lived, her parents declined to speak with him about the matter, which like, I actually do get that because if it wasn't Betty, it would be really weird if the people were like, yeah, sure. Come talk to our daughter. That's not yours. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I admire him for trying. And a lot of people like to make that like, it's like, they know something, you know, about the New York family. But I'm like, it's probably not her. <laughs> yeah, it it goes either way. It, it can. Yeah. It can. Trying to be a little objective. Sure. By 1947, George and Jenny were fed up with the fact that it seemed like police in their hometown were not interested in helping them get to the bottom of the whole ordeal. Mm-hmm. So they actually contacted the FBI that year by letter. Hmm. Believe it or not, they actually did receive a letter back from J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, Wow. The J. Edgar Hoover, like the first director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. Wow. He wrote them back and said, quote, although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau, end quote. Mm. A team of Hoover's agents said that they would happily come in and assist in the investigation if they would get the approval of local authorities in Fayetteville. But both police and fire officials in Fayetteville declined the FBI's offer for help, and they never gave an explanation why. So there's that. Wow. So somebody's just paying off the police, probably. Potentially. (laughs) I do know that there is also some, like, depending on the area, there is some tension or, mm. or almost like a chip on the shoulder of like a local police department when there's a crime that sure. maybe they might be in over their heads on yeah. that they don't want the FBI to come in and swoop in and take their case. Sure. Which is like a stupid point of pride to me. Yeah. Like coming from a complete non-expert on the matter. Yeah. Uh, well, so I, I want to leave room for that. But also yeah. it does feel weird considering everything else. Yeah. Why wouldn't you just take free help from the FBI? Right. What? And it's one of those things that they're not even doing anything about it right now. So it's right. what what point of pride would there possibly be to say, 
Oh totally. yeah. I mean, I guess we're not doing anything. So yeah, give it go your for best it. bet. You're not going to break it either. You know, but sure. That's why it just makes me think there's something more behind the scenes happening. Mm-hmm. So the Sodders decided to take matters into their own hands by hiring a private investigator named C.C. Tinley. Tinley managed to uncover a few salacious bits of information, some of which that I've already shared, such as the stuff regarding the conflicts of interest in the coroner's jury and their findings and things like that. Mm -hmm. Another thing he discovered came in the form of a tip. A local minister told Tinley that Fire Chief Morris had confided in him that he'd found a human heart in the rubble of the fire. He said that he'd put the heart in a box and then buried the box at the scene. Uh, that seems illegal. (laughs) Yeah. So Tinley was like, are you going to tell me about this? Like, maybe you should fill me in on this. People are talking. Yeah. And Morris was like, yeah, yeah, I did that. So Tinley had Morris take him to the scene and together they dug around until they found the box. Oh my gosh. In the box was not a human heart charred from the flames of an abnormally hot house fire. But according to a local mortician, it was a fresh beef liver. One that had no signs of ever being in a fire at all. What? So why? Uh, Yeah. Why is a great question. Tinley went back to Morris and he's like, what? Why? Like, what was this about? And Morris told him that he'd buried the organ, hoping that the Sodders would just trust him. And then maybe they could have some peace and closure and they'd like be able to move on. Wow. What a hero. But like, what? But he also told them no remains were found. So like, come on, Morris. Like, oh, gosh, like it can't be both. Yeah, that's literally none of that makes sense. And that dude's full of just total (laughs) garbage. Yeah. Full of of stuff. (laughs) Full of it. (laughs) As the years continued marching on, tips from across the country would continue to pour in. They were kidnapped and sold on the black market or into an orphanage by disgruntled Italian mobsters, angry over George's comments about Mussolini, or they were kidnapped by a family member of Jenny's for no discernible reason, mm-hmm. or they were kidnapped before the fire when they were doing late night chores. But even still, none of these tips seemed to totally fit. Sure. Some were more credible than others, but none of them led the Sodders any closer to finding what had happened to their children. In August of 1949, the Sodders decided to have the scene excavated and re-examined by fresh eyes. Hmm. They brought in a pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter from Washington, D.C., who came in and got right to work. After a careful and thorough investigation, several things were discovered. Old appliances, partially burned books and like destroyed coins, Mm -hmm. and several pieces of human bones. Oh, The bones were sent off to the Smithsonian Institute, who determined that the bones were human. They issued this statement about the bones. Mm -hmm. Quote, the bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age should be about 22, since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. End quote. Hmm. The oldest child that had allegedly died in the fire was 14, which was Maurice. Yeah. The Smithsonian Institute did say that it wasn't totally impossible that the vertebrae that they'd examined belonged to someone younger, but that it really wasn't probable either. Sure. So like they wouldn't totally rule it out. Yeah. They're like, just that would be, Hmm. they they were pretty confident, I guess is what I'm getting at. One other crucial discovery made on the bones is that they contain no evidence of being exposed to fire. Hmm. The report concluded that the bones were likely present in the dirt that George had used to fill in the basement after the fire. Oh, wow. That's creepy. Just a totally separate murder death of some sort. Yeah. Of a human, young human. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some reports said that Tinley like sort of deduced somehow that the dirt had previously been in a certain cemetery, but Mm. I didn't see anything of like how he deduced that. Okay. And I didn't see that very consistently. And also George like knew the ropes on that. He knew how to move dirt around. (laughs) There's laws and codes and I'm sure you can't just go into the cemetery and take their dirt. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, so Hmm. 
Once again, not an expert, but that seems pretty. Yeah. So there's just more mystery surrounding those bones in particular because it doesn't line up with the death of his children. Totally. It doesn't line up with being in a fire. Doesn't necessarily line up with being remains from a cemetery. It's just those are from something. Yeah. At some point. Well, and they didn't have any way to like run additional forensics on them. So yeah, 1949, I would imagine that would be. And they were lost. Nobody knows where they are. Currently? Currently. lost? Yes. What? Yes. Oh my. Okay. Hmm. So. Yeah. After these findings were announced, the governor and police superintendent in West Virginia told the Sodders that their quest to find answers about the children was hopeless. And so they closed the case. Hmm. And so did another private investigator that they'd hired. The PI stated that he worked tirelessly and consulted with every extremely qualified professional and expert in various fields, but all of his leads had run dry. Yeah. He said he would remain puzzled and full of sadness for the Sodders for the rest of his days and felt so terrible that he couldn't bring them any comfort. Wow. The Sodders were not done, however. Hmm. They began passing out flyers with pictures and information about their children and the fire, including a $5,000 reward for information, which would equate to around $50,000 today. Wow. The reward was even increased to $10,000 at one point. Of course, this brought in a notable increase in tips flying in with plenty of wholesome folks looking to cash in on a terrible tragedy. Yeah, yeah. That will never cease to baffle me. Mm-hmm. Every time I see that, I'm like, oh, I don't get it. Right. Oh, I do not get it. Just throwing a a gamble to the wind for $100,000. Yeah. Yeah, rude. In 1953, the Sodders put up a billboard on their property that could be seen from Route 16 with pictures of their children and bold capital letters reading, quote, what was their fate? Kidnapped? Murdered? Or are they still alive? End quote. Along Hmm. with a reward offer. The Sodders would take care of and clean the billboard, sometimes changing the message. One message asking for the public to help the Sodders find their children. One of them read, quote, On Christmas Eve 1945, our home was set afire and five of our children, ages 5 through 14, kidnapped. The officials blamed defective wiring, although lights were still burning after the fire started. Hmm. The official report stated that the children died in the fire. However, no bones were found in the residue and there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire. What was the motive of law officers involved? What did they have to gain by making us suffer all these years of injustice? Why did they lie and force us to accept those lies? End quote. Wow. They just went right after him. Yeah. Yeah. Directly after him. They were not happy with how the investigation was handled. And I don't blame them. Yeah. They were dismissed. And the thing is, is even if... I'm going to wait to get into this. Actually, I'm going to wait. So the billboard made it into the news in Fayetteville and surrounding areas, including additional statements from the family stating that they would not press any charges if someone just would come forward and reunite them with their children or tell them what happened. Mm. You're not going to get in trouble. We're not interested in punishing you. We literally just want our children back. Yeah. In 1968, more than 20 years since the fire, a new report would come in. Jenny received a letter in the mail addressed to her, postmarked from Kentucky, but with no return address. In it was a picture of a young man who appeared to be about 30 years of age. The letter read simply, quote, love Lewis Sauter. I love brother Frankie. And then some letters, like I's and L's, boys, A90132 or 35, end quote. Which, crazy enough, the zip code A90132 was the zip code area code for Sicily, Italy until 2006. Oh, which is interesting. I just got goosebumps again. That's crazy. Okay. A year or so before they received this photo and cryptic letter, a woman from Houston, Texas wrote the Sodders explaining that a friend of hers had told her that he was Lewis Sodder and that he'd been living in Texas with his brother Maurice. Unfortunately, though these seemed like promising leads for many reasons, the most powerful being the fact that the man in the photo 100% looked like it could be Lewis Sauter, Mm -hmm. they were never able to figure out who sent the letter, and they were not able to find any answers, really, about the man in the photo. When George made contact with the man in Houston, who the woman claimed to have been Lewis Sauter, George was convinced that it was his son, but the man apologized and said that... I'm sorry, I'm not Lewis Sauter, and I never told anybody that I was. Hmm. Many people believe that these were sick pranks. 
but that hasn't been proven either. Sure, sure. George Sauter passed away in 1969 at the age of 73, never knowing what happened to his children. His headstone reads, quote, George Sauter, who believed in justice for everyone, but was denied justice by the law when his five children were kidnapped Christmas Eve 1945 at Fayetteville, West Virginia, end quote. Jenny, who had only worn black since Christmas Eve of 1945 as a symbol of her grief, maintained the billboard and did what she could to follow up on any leads. She became more and more withdrawn after George had passed, but always kept up on maintaining the memorial garden where her home had once stood. She passed away in 1989 at the age of 85 and was buried next to George at Highland Memorial Park in Fayette County. Unfortunately, Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest of the Sauter children, passed away in 2021. For the remainder of her days, she carried on the family torch, doing what she could to keep the story of the mystery of what happened to her siblings in the public eye, but she too would pass away without any closure. One heartbreaking thing is that she has made many statements about how her first memory from her childhood was the blood coming down her dad's arm. Mm. And her mom and dad screaming and the sight of her house as it was like falling to the ground. Oh my gosh. Really sad. (sighs) She maintained that she did not believe that her siblings died that night. And so do her children and even her grandchildren. Wow. To this very day. Yeah. So they all are like, they, I mean, they're not out there anymore probably, but they're all in agreement. Like our aunts and uncles are somewhere Mm -hmm. or were somewhere. And yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She, from what I could find, Sylvia wouldn't go like on shows or podcasts or Mm -hmm. um, articles or whatever, but her, she would like either do written statements or her children would kind of relay information. But I mean, she really wanted people to be interested Mm -hmm. in this story and like finding out what actually happened. Yeah. Cause she's hoping that someone will inevitably find a link to somebody. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, all it takes is the right person plugging in their DNA to 23andMe and being you never like, know. you're a solder. What? You know? Yeah. That's, that would be crazy. Mm. We've seen crazy things on we, this show with that sure kind have. of thing. We sure have. Unfortunately, we are only left with theories. One of the two main theories that many lean on is that there was some grand conspiracy in the Fayetteville community to exact some sort of revenge on George mm-hmm. for his statement about Mussolini. Theories that believe this and kind of go down this lane have a pretty broad range beyond that motive. Some believe the children were kidnapped only to be sold or killed. Some Mm. believe that they were kidnapped and then adopted out separately. There are plenty of people who at least support the motive, given the many, many odd things about the months leading up to the fire, the night of the fire, and the completely ridiculous investigation that followed. They believed children did not die in the fire. The fire was a ruse. Mm-hmm. So that's the first theory. Yeah. The other main theory is that the original ruling was correct, that the five solder children did in fact pass away in the fire. So a radio host at NPR put together actually a very, very solid piece about this story, mm. and she supports this theory. Interesting. She believed that the Sodders, suffering from extreme grief, denial, and survivor's guilt, had just refused to see things for what they were, a terrible, unfathomable tragedy. She believes that the Sodders took every mishandling of the investigation, which there were plenty, Hmm. and used it as a sort of proof that things were not what they had seemed. The firemen's response time, the fact that Chief Morris told them they found no remains, even though it is possible that he had but decided not to tell them for whatever reason. Yeah, sure. So when they learned about remains later, they only saw it as further proof of their theory. Hmm. There are other things in this NPR report that you can't find anywhere else. Uh, I mean, maybe things afterwards because they saw it in this article, (laughs) but according to author Stacy Horn in the Sauter home, George had stored car parts and shop essentials in his basement, most notably barrels upon barrels of gasoline. Mm. If this was true, the gasoline would most definitely accelerate the fire. And when you combine that with the pressure of the house folding in on itself, you're left with a nightmare of physics that could have potentially completely destroyed the remains. Sure. She compared it to a pressure cooker. Yeah. Which is very gruesome to think about. Mm. Another important bit of the story that many cite is that John, the oldest son, had given a few conflicting statements. 
Initially, he'd actually said that he'd seen the younger siblings in their rooms after the fire had started. He ran in and tried to shake them awake, but as the heat intensified, so did his fear for his own life, and so he ran out. Yeah. Later on, he gave a different statement saying that he had only remembered calling out to them and that his recollection of seeing them in their rooms could have been a false memory since he was very confused and panicked during the whole sure, ordeal. Sure. Stacy Horn cites that this is further evidence that the children tragically most likely died that night and John changing his story was an act of like self-preservation to like shield himself from like the guilt of mm. not saving unwarranted guilt yeah. of not saving his siblings. Yeah. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. He barely made it out himself though. Like, and when he did, his hair was literally singed with fire. Right. right. So like, I wish that I, I, I don't think John is still with us, but I wish that I could just pat him on the shoulder and tell him there's yeah. nothing you could have done. This makes yeah. me sad. Yeah. I, I know how my brain works Yeah. and I would absolutely feel that same guilt. Hmm. But I would also be able to rationalize why I shouldn't. Yeah. So just to clarify or maybe ask just a clarifying question. Sure. So this NPR interview or uh, article, all of these things that you're saying are only found in this uh, no, article. No. Okay. People talk about John's conflicting statements. Okay. The The main thing that was only in the NPR article that I included was the gasoline being stored in the basement okay. hmm. and that being an accelerant. Yeah. So that is, I saw that absolutely nowhere else and I could have just missed it. And I didn't read, there's like so many books and short stories and stuff like oh, that okay. written about it, okay, that sure. I could have missed. But yeah, from what I've seen, she's the one who's like, Hey, here's some new evidence. Hmm. Interesting. So I will include that. Cause she talks with a lot of people in this article and she talks with people who believe the children died in the fire believe that they did not that hmm. have all different kind of life experience and professional experience that they use to like weigh in yeah. with their opinion. So I'll, I'm definitely including that. Okay. You guys should all read. It's long, but it's definitely worth yeah. the read. It's very, very compelling. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So either way, the story is still technically unsolved and still haunts the minds of people across the country and even across the world to this very day. Yeah. The billboard remained on Route 16 until shortly after Jenny had passed away in 1989. What happened on the night of Christmas Eve 1945 is unfortunately a mystery that we'll probably never have the answers to. Mm -hmm. People have tried and failed for almost 80 years to crack the code definitively yeah. and with no known leads left to follow today. I'm afraid we'll never truly know what happened to the Sauter children, mm -hmm. but that is what I have for you today. Wow. Wow. I am... Uh, I, I have a lot of conflicting feelings now, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially after you sharing all that from the NPR report. And mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, initially my gut goes to, well, this is clearly a, a conspiracy done by some Mussolini supporters. Mm -hmm. And I think my gut still goes there because there's so much just hate in the world today right let alone 60 70 years ago right where someone would just be willing to do something outrageous like that knowing that they could do it without getting caught well and considering all the threats and if there were multiple people conspiring yeah. with different levels of mm -hmm. uh, like authority in the town the ability to write what the narrative is yeah nuts that the insurance guy was allowed to be on the coroner's jury that's totally. insane to me yeah, there's so many and what circumstantial things. Yeah, that it's just way too fishy. And it is fishy. That's I think that's why my gut goes to oh, there's something about Mussolini mm -hmm. related, not him specifically. Well, I mean, maybe <laughs> I doubt it, uh, but there's something about Mussolini supporters and people making weird threats and mm -hmm. yeah. That's well, and the pineapple bonkers. bomb, my, yeah. my yeah. gut they tells me a pineapple bomb. That's crazy. My gut tells me that the children had gone to bed. They were in the attic and they, I mean, uh, Jenny had heard the ball hit the roof mm -hmm. and roll. And it was about 30 minutes before there was smoke that was discernible from their room. And so if the attic had already been burning for 30 minutes, Hmm. Unfortunately, the children could have very well 
lost consciousness from smoke inhalation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the, the flames were fully engulfed when they left the room, mm-hmm. uh, the stairs leading to the attic. So yeah. it's highly possible that they were in there. And then what Stacy Horn said in the NPR thing about the gasoline, essentially turning the home into a pressure cooker. Yeah. I don't think is entirely impossible. Yeah. My gut doesn't think that the kids were kidnapped. Sure. Um, but I almost would prefer that if they were able to like be adopted and like live happy sure. lives. Yes. Like neither, neither one feels yes. good. Neither they, one feels yeah, good. It feels bad because basically the 14 year old has to be brainwashed into forgetting I their know. own family. Like, I know. so it's all terrible, but I guess, yeah, my, my gut goes to, I guess I shouldn't say that it's a necessarily a kidnapping. The whole thing reeks of something fishy. Yeah. Where, even if they did die in the fire, it feels like it has to be related to something yeah. nefarious. It was not. Regardless, I don't think it was faulty wiring. Yeah. I think that's garbage. Yeah. I think that 100% somebody conspired to start the home on fire. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. That That is one that, on that for sure. I'm like just so crossing my fingers and toes that like someday mm-hmm. we're going to get an insane break where it's like, we know what happened to even one of them. Yeah. Because yeah. if one of them was found, then it, the potential that all five of them mm-hmm. are out there somewhere, even yeah. if they are, have since passed away. Yeah. That we, we'd find out. That we would find yeah. out. You never know. They identified the boy in the box. They identified the lady of the dunes. Mm-hmm. You just never know. Right. Wow. And the Somerton man. Yeah. Well... Thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. All of them. Yeah. All of them. This, this is, covers the gambit. This is this is one that for sure does. I, I, I feel like we've said that a lot recently, mm-hmm. but this one very much. Children's I, stories. I feel, yeah. I feel all, all sorts of ways. If you have an opinion on how you feel about today's episode, make sure you leave a comment on Instagram or Facebook or wherever and let us know. Speaking of which... Make sure that you follow us on Instagram hmm. and TikTok at this one is a doozy. And on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. Um, you can also subscribe on your favorite listening platform, whether that be Spotify, Apple Music, uh, Amazon, wh- wherever you listen, whatever you like. And please leave a glowing five star review. Those reviews help us to show up in other people's feeds when they're looking around for more podcasts like this one. And also, you can connect with us via email at thisoneisadoozy at gmail.com with suggestions of episodes, any feedback you might have, anything like that. I've gotten some good recommends. Really? Recently that I'm excited to dig into. Yeah. And there's one more way even that people can connect with us. How can they connect with us? Mm, I would love to tell you. So you can connect with us over on Patreon. You can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about, or you can search us on the website or app. This one's a doozy podcast. Mm -hmm. And for $5 a month, you can support what we're doing here and you can get access to polls where you can help us decide on episode topics. And you can also help us decide which foundation, which charity, memorial fund Mm -hmm. that we're going to support that month. So, yeah. That is so exciting. We are thankful for you, listener, and we are also going to announce next week oh. the charity that we're supporting for our very first ever. First giving. ever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. All right. So hop on that Patreon now while you still can. That way you can vote on that. And with that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Thank you. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.